0: In Session with Dr. Fadi
1: Tolakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology including any emotional or psychological issues parenting issues and relationship issues as well you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, studio number 3104410555. The book of the week for this week is 10% Happier by Dan Harris. 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story. I'd seen this book a lot, but... Someone had recommended it to me recently, so I thought I would check it out. So 10% Happier by Dan Harris. I think people in the United States would like to be 10% happier or 10% less anxious and and related to that 10% more certain or more than that. And so as I'm broadcasting to you live Wednesday around 12 noon here in Los Angeles time, The presidential race is still not decided. There uh, are, of course, a lot of states have already been projected and there's clear winners, but an overall winner is not clear. And so, like many Americans, uh, I am in this state of not knowing. And that's one of the hardest states for us to have, Uh, you know, when you're waiting for test results, let's say it's, uh, you know, lots of people getting covid tests or MRI. Uh, People get tests for serious things, like Mm -hmm. if they have cancer or not. Oftentimes, people will say the hardest time is the not knowing, the waiting part. And this is understandable because when you don't know, you don't know what to feel and you don't know what to do because you can't do anything in, in these type of situations. So I talked about this a bit on Monday's show that our feelings our information which i think is very good and a very good thing for us to be in touch with very often we are disconnected from our feelings unfortunately and people don't have a good understanding of what they're feeling at any given moment to first even know what they're feeling uh which you have to know first to then understand the why which could give you some information like are you anxious about something sad about something upset angry happy whatever the feeling might be obviously good and bad good and bad feelings. And so we have to know them first and then try to understand the why. Now, the thing with something like anxiety is, to begin with, we know as any beings, um, we're trying to survive. And as human beings, that we can see or think about the future. Of course, this is very good in many ways, but it also does create this possibility for anxiety or worrying about things that have not yet happened. So you can worry about something that's that's going to happen. Now, a lot of times this can be good, and then you can prepare. So like a quintessential ancestral type of way of thinking of this is, okay, there might not be as much food in the winter. That could create some anxiety, worry in you, that then causes you to prepare for that winter storing food, because you know that. And if so if you didn't worry about it at all, you wouldn't survive the winter. And so we can imagine in a a, you know caricature of evolution there was our ancestors some of them didn't worry and they would just uh you know enjoy the moment so to speak but in a way that was just geared towards instant gratification not thinking about the future and so they didn't survive those winters and so our ancestors that did survive were slightly more anxious than those individuals who did not care about preparing for the future. So that was good that it helped us survive and to prepare for futures that have not happened yet. But of course, it also gives us this experience of anxiety. And the majority of the time, our anxiety almost, I mean, if you look at the numbers, if you think about it, it's going to be probably more than 90, 99% of the time is not something you need to worry about or the thing you're worried about happening won't happen. And a lot of times it's not even in your control and that's even worse. I like the analogy of thinking of some of our negative feelings, especially something like anxiety, kind of like a smoke alarm. So if you live in a home and you, most places you have to have a smoke alarm that works, most of the time if your smoke alarm goes off, you're fairly certain there's no fire. You don't really think there's a fire. You think maybe the battery is malfunctioning or needs to be changed. Or someone's cooking and some smoke or steam has gotten to the alarm and so it goes off and so we usually hear the alarm and you they make them in a way that makes you react so that you can't ignore it but you usually are not so worried you might go check the room or check wherever but you know you're a little worried but you're not so worried and then you go and you see what's going on now We want them to function in that way because it's better to have false positives where you think something is wrong uh, to avoid the time where something really is wrong. So you'd rather it be more sensitive than less sensitive. That's kind of how our anxiety is. We worry about things. Oh gosh, what if this happens? What if that happens? Usually it's not going to happen and it doesn't happen, but that's how our brain is skewed. So that's something we have to just understand about ourselves is that Essentially, as humans, we are skewed towards the negative, worrying about the negative happening. Um, uh, you know, in general, negatives outweigh positives in the sense that if something can kill you, that's a much bigger threat than anything good. As far as let's say someone found some food, there's some berries here that are good, that's nice. But if there's a lion that can kill you, that threat should be bigger. the The threat of death is always more significant and can be more impactful than any positive thing. It can't, you know, I know there's the cliche saying that youngsters will say, if it gives me life, but nothing can really give you life to the same degree that something can take it away. So we can see for a lot of reasons, it makes sense to have this skew towards the negative, but then of course it has that negative impact in our daily experience where we worry about things that uh, we don't need to or that are not gonna happen, but we still worry about them. And of course, like any human characteristic, there is a range of, of how, you know, your default set of worrying. Some people can be worried or get anxious more than others just by default, and it can even lead to what we might consider an anxiety disorder, whether it's generalized anxiety disorder. Um, or a phobia, or OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. So some people, unfortunately for them, in a lot of ways, because it could be too much, they feel anxiety too much. Now, there could be people that feel it too little. We don't think about them so much, but they might be like those ancestors I was saying. They might not worry about things enough. But since, in my estimation, our skew is to the negative, probably if you're more on the other side, you actually be closer to a realistic view anyway. So it won't likely be bad. But if yeah, you don't worry at all about anything, that could be a problem. Just like to give you an example, if you're studying for a test, you know, there's kind of like a U-shaped relationship when we look at anxiety, uh, an inverted U. Because if you don't have enough anxiety, if you don't really care, or there's no motivation, you're not going to really put a lot of effort into studying for the test. You're like, I don't really care. Oh, I'll do it, whatever. Maybe I'll do it. And then, of course, on the other extreme, if you have too much anxiety, and this is what happens for some people, when you're trying to study, you won't be able to focus or you won't be able to take in the information or you'll be too fidgety or n- unable to, d- to keep your concentration for long enough to take anything in. And that's just the studying part. Then when it comes to taking the exam, if you're overly anxious. Again, you won't be able to really perform because when you're anxious and you're in that state of threat, which is what we can feel when we're really anxious, then we don't access things as well. Your frontal lobe even is not going to be working as well. So you're not going to be able to, or it's not going to be as active. So it's not going to be able to really gather the information you might know. And this is why people uh, who have test anxiety or high anxiety in general, They'll take a test and then they'll blank and they'll miss so many things. The test will finish and they'll realize I knew so many of the answers that I didn't write down or I didn't think of during the exam. But there's a middle area of having some anxiety that can kind of fuel you, uh, keep you going. But it's not too much that it overwhelms you. And that's where we want to be is somewhere in that middle ground where we have some okay, there, I, I do care about this test, I know I need to study, so I have a week left, I need to start studying today. I, I have enough anxiety that makes me study today. Not uh, too much where it makes it that I can't even study today because I'm overwhelmed. And actually, um, what might seem strange is if you think, well, if you're so worried, you're going to study even more. But actually, anxiety is one of the biggest causes of procrastination, or what's underneath procrastination, in the majority of the cases is actually anxiety, which can seem puzzling from the outside because people sometimes look at someone procrastinating and think, oh, this person doesn't even care about their paper or this deadline or this test or whatever the thing may be. But usually the things we put off, we're trying to avoid because they make us anxious. So people very often have a lot of anxiety, they avoid things. And the classic example is you wanna study, they look at the textbook And they're about to get the chapter open and they look at a sentence and they kind of don't understand it. And then they go to this cat cat, uh, catastrophizing where they look, oh my gosh, I don't get this sentence. What does that mean? Am I going to not get anything? Oh, there's 40 more pages just in the chapter. They feel this. They feel this anxiety. What do we do when we feel anxious? What it usually makes us want to do, especially if we're feeling very anxious to the point of feeling almost afraid if it triggers this kind of fight or flight. Well, it's hard to fight the information, you're gonna flee from it. So you close the book and do something else. And unfortunately, closing the book and doing something else momentarily gives you a huge relief. (sighs) that anxious feeling of facing all that information and worrying about failing and all these things momentarily has been put on hold. And that relief, unfortunately, is very reinforcing to do that behavior again. And this is why people, when they're procrastinating, it becomes kind of a cycle that they're used to. They, you know, uh, studying is one thing, writing a paper another one. Let's say I'm using school examples. You open that blank document. You're just looking at the cursor blinking. You're feeling anxious. What's a good first sentence? What am I going to write? Do I even know what to write? I have to write eight pages. Do I? Know? And then you go on Instagram or Facebook or Google or YouTube, whatever you're going to do to distract yourself. And again, that relief unfortunately feels good. And you're like, Ooh, that feels nice to get away from it. Of course, in the background, the stress is still there and it's gonna build up. And now you're just gonna have less time to do whatever it is that you need to do. And so you're gonna get more stressed over time, but in the moment, it reinforces itself. So interestingly, when you see someone procrastinating, although very often you might think, oh, this shows they don't care at all, It can often mean that they care quite a bit, that they really care about this thing almost too much. It's affecting them too much. They're putting too much pressure on it. Someone who's a perfectionist will unfortunately put so much pressure on writing the right sentence. If I read this information, I have to know all of it perfectly and not miss any questions related to this and all of that makes them less likely to actually do the work so something just to be aware of for yourself or if you see someone procrastinating rather than going to what looks like the straightforward um, information that you're receiving that they don't care that much because they're not working on it be aware that it actually could be the other way around they might be putting too much pressure on themselves or on what's going on that actually makes them freeze so those are some uh, You know, some ideas or thoughts on anxiety and how it can work. And as I said, I will tie it into the election and not knowing and how challenging that can be for us as human beings. But essentially, if we are realistic with ourselves, we will see that much of the time, most of the time with most things, we don't know actually. We maybe will tell ourselves we know or we won't think about the things we don't know because that's easier. But there's a lot of things we have to accept that we don't know. And the other thing I'll also touch on uh, in the next segment is related to control because sometimes we worry about things we can't control that can be really problematic. But if we're worrying about something we can control, well then sometimes there's something we can do about it and that can actually help us by doing action to deal with the anxiety. So let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment I was talking about anxiety in particular related to the election where right now in the United States, although yesterday was technically election day, we don't have the results as far as president goes in a clear cut fashion the next day, today's uh, Wednesday, November 4th, we still don't have a clear cut winner and so we are in a state of not knowing, which is one of the harder states for us to handle as human beings because as I'll talk about, we don't have a sense of control. We can't do anything about things that we don't know. Now an election, once you've cast your vote, before you can campaign, do whatever you're going to do, there's really not much you can do but wait. But now the waiting period, it feels like it might be longer this election than in previous elections. And so that's creating even a longer state of being in this not knowing. But as I was saying before the break, when we look at anxiety uh, like most feelings uh, they are good in the right doses and when we deal with them the right way too little or too much of it can be bad even something like anger which uh, can sound strange to people because usually when we think of anger we think of something negative okay i need to get rid of my anger i need to manage my anger yes that can be important how you manage it but getting rid of anger is not good. You actually need to have the function or the experience of anger. Uh, I think in the book I, I read a, a while ago, Consolations, it was talking about how anger is actually a, a compassionate feeling. It was quite interesting. But it was talking about how anger actually is how we protect ourselves and also stand up for others. You feel angry when you see an injustice whether it's done to you or to someone else. And so being in touch with that anger in a healthy way is actually very good. If you disconnect from it, as is often the case, people put anger in their shadow as a feeling they should never feel, never experience, and never express, it actually takes away from your own vitality and standing up for yourself, taking care of yourself. Anger doesn't have to mean violence or aggression at all. Can it become those things? Yes. But that's actually when anger is usually not expressed. uh, It's suppressed or when it's not expressed or when we lose hold of it. But itself, anger is not something bad. So if someone says, I'm angry with you, that doesn't mean they're doing something bad. They hopefully will have some reason for it that they can share with you of what you did that has hurt them or upset them or in some way they felt violated, even in what might seem a minor way. But they're letting you know that's actually a very good thing. And we should expect... That if we are interacting with others, being genuine with others, spending time with one another, you're going to do, say things or not do or say things that will make the other person upset. That is a natural part of being in relationships. So we have to accept that. So even anger is not something we should try to get rid of, but understand and have a healthy relationship. So same is true of things like anxiety. It's understandable. You worry about things you care about things and so you will at times feel worried and sometimes that worry can actually fuel taking care of something you think oh something i forgot to call for this that'll make you call make sure you pay that bill do whatever it is you need to do that worry serves a function now of course it can go too far so as i was saying before sometimes too much anxiety actually makes us not do so in overdrive it actually takes away from its purpose or function of getting us to take action because we feel frozen by the anxiety. We feel overwhelmed by the anxiety and that's where it can become a problem. And I also mentioned before the break, we can have a sense of a different defaults that we all have in our brains, which also, uh, makes sense when you look at things like anxiety disorders, and genetically, they tend to go together. So if your mother had OCD, it makes it more likely that you have OCD, but it also makes it more likely that you might have other anxiety disorders. So you might not have obsessive compulsive disorder, but you might have a phobia, or you might have social anxiety, or you might have Uh, generalized anxiety disorder. So we can see that it seems the brain in a way, and it's not just one part of the brain, it's not that modulated or there's different modules that are only anxiety. But the way the brain is functioning might be more geared towards feeling anxiety in in a stronger way. So that's something to be aware of and you can be aware of your own sense. And it's not fixed, although you might have a predisposition. Things like anxiety can be, uh, sorry, things like meditation, and actually the book this week, 10% Happier, I didn't realize till I started reading it, focuses a lot on meditation and mindfulness. That can help reduce your anxiety to some degree. Of course, medications and other things can do that as well. But there are some ways we can always affect our default. So our default doesn't mean it's fixed in stone as some kind of state, but we do seem to have different defaults. Now coming back to what I mentioned before the break about things you can control versus things you can't control. Uh, I first came across this concept years ago, reading uh, Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talked about your circle of uh, concern and your circle of control. I might be saying those wrong, but essentially there are a circle of things you care about. Like right now, for many people in the United States, they care about the election but as far as your circle of control what you can actually do about it there's very little and as i mentioned before uh at this point probably nothing you can do about it you've already cast your vote you can try to post something on twitter or facebook or instagram but it it doesn't seem that'll change the result in any way so you don't have any control over it. And what he was suggesting in that book, Stephen Covey, was we want to try to focus on our circle of control as much as we can, and try not to focus so much on the circle of concern where that we can't control, the things that we can't control. If it's going to rain tomorrow, now you know you can look up some numbers on it, prediction, but you don't want to spend a lot of time worrying, is it going to rain, not going to rain, is it going to rain? Something in your control is, I'm going to take my umbrella. I'm going to prepare myself in case it does rain so that i'll be okay but focusing too much on if it's going to rain or not and trying to wonder about that is not going to do you much so same thing if you're studying for a test you can find out about the exam that's good and then now the part that's in your control is how much you study i got a text in the previous segment from someone who was studying and so she you know her school there's going to be different professors different classes uh, that she'll have to deal with but of course those things will be out of her control the way they are and the tests they're going to make But what is 100% in her control is how much she's going to study, how hard she's going to work uh, to do well. And because I know how smart she is and more important than how smart she is, how hardworking she is, I'm sure she's going to do fine and will be working very hard to get uh, the good grades that I know uh, she, she deserves and will earn. So what is in our control is something that we want to get a handle of. And so a lot of life, we don't have control over things and we have to accept that. That can be very hard to accept Uh, and because if we don't accept it, we try to control things that we can't, which means we're going to stress and hurt ourselves a lot in a lot of ways of just worrying about things. And unfortunately, what you also see in relationships, especially romantic relationships, and even more strongly in parental relationships, is you'll try to control people. I'm worried my son or daughter is going to get hurt, so I'm not going to let them go to this place or I'm going to overprotect them. I'm going to shelter them. I'm going to shield them. Because we want to take control over something that's unpredictable. And this is what I observe in parents versus their kids. There's definitely a bias that's almost always there, where the kids are trying to, and by kids also when they become teenagers and young adults, they're looking at their life. They want to experience things, right? So they're thinking, I want to go to this party. I want to have a social life. they're focusing on the experiences and the growth and the fun and the parents are usually focused more on not getting hurt well you know they could get hurt at that party so why don't they just stay home if they stay home we're going to be safe here let's just keep them here and that way we'll be safe and so the focus is very different where the child maybe now sometimes they might not look at all the risks but we we want to trust them as much as we can Uh, the parents are looking too much just at the risks and not worried about Well, what happens, they just want to prevent something bad from happening. And you know what? We can have fun here. We'll rent a movie. People don't rent movies anymore. We'll watch Netflix. We'll get pizza. If you want, you can invite friends over. Just be here. Stay here. And so the focus is just on protection because we're trying to control something because it's too scary to let them out into the world. And I understand when you love someone so much, as a parent does, and also feel this responsibility to protect them, as is your responsibility as a parent, those things together can bring this strong sense of, I need to protect them at any costs. And a lot of times the costs, unfortunately, that parents give to their child is interfering with their growth and their experience as a human being. So you don't need to go to parties, you don't need to do this, just stay home, find excuses to control you. So when we try to control things, either that aren't in our control, or we try to control other people because we want to feel more control, these tend to get us into trouble and hurt either ourselves or ourselves and the people around us. And so as a parent, you have to look at that. Am I willing, because you have to at some level, to accept that I don't have complete control? It's scary to think, okay, my child is at school, my child is at this party, my child is going here or there. And things can happen. Of course, things can happen. If you want nothing to ever happen to your child, then, you know, you could try to put them in a room, even in a room, they can get hurt. And as far as you go, they still can get hurt. But nonetheless, in all that you're doing, you're not just limiting that they can get hurt. You're also limiting their experiences and their opportunities to grow. That's what happens when we have experiences, even when we get hurt in small ways. Your child needs to get hurt in small ways, physically and emotionally. That's part of life. They'll be okay, just like we are when we get hurt. They can handle small hurts and things that happen, and that also will help them grow. And, very importantly, will help them learn that even when those hurts happen, I'm okay. I can handle it. And I think sometimes people go to too far of an extreme about this, about what's happening. But you do see this trend in parenting for sure that people are becoming so overprotective. And the only thing they're thinking about, what I call as the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, is that I have to make sure nothing bad ever happens to my kid in any way. They don't feel slightly bad in any way. They don't physically get hurt in any way. That's my only role as a parent, which it's not at all your role as a parent, because You always have to differentiate between the pain that is damage and the pain that is growth. Pain that is damage is similar to if you're working out, you might tear a ligament or tear a muscle too much in a bad way or um, you know, injure yourself in some way that's detrimental to your body, but then there's also pain that's growth, which is the microscopic tears. Uh, the the person I was talking about is going to med school, so she can tell me much more about this. But as far as I understand, there's microscopic tears, so really no pain, no gain. That. Then lead to muscle growth, and you have to push yourself to be uncomfortable. So, if you exercise only to the point where you stay comfortable, you won't really get any workout and have any benefits to your health or really do anything. You need to push a little bit into that discomfort, differentiating between the pain that is damage. You don't want to damage your body, hurt your ligaments, or bones, or muscles, um, and the pain that is growth. So, as a parent, you're not supposed to control them, you have to let them experience pain and experience it in the right ways. Taking that away is actually taking something from them. You're not helping them or taking care of them. You're taking something from them and taking something away from them. But coming back to what we're experiencing now in the election and the not knowing, this is really hard. And uh, I mentioned this on Monday night show the night before the election, that although if you listen to me, I'm always promoting connecting with your feelings, being in touch with them, don't avoid your feelings. But when something is out of your control and you're waiting, then distraction does make sense. If you can take action in some way, take action for sure. Because that is very important to take the actions you can take. Use that anxiety or that feeling as a fuel. That's wonderful. That's what the feelings are for, is to fuel us into the right action. But if it's something you can't do anything about, like waiting for election results then I'm all about distracting. Or if you got an MRI and you're waiting for the results till tomorrow, distract yourself. You don't need to sit there and think about everything. Yes, you might do a brief planning of if it's x result i'll do this if it's y result i'll do this but getting too far into it into the feelings unfortunately this is where our big brains and what we're capable of doing you can go into each experience fully and this is what i'm going to feel and what am i going to tell this person what's going to happen and think about all the emotions and go through the whole experience that might not even happen so when we're waiting on something that we can't control the best thing you can do is actually. What is rare to give as advice but distract yourself you don't need to think about it do whatever you can so even with the election results if you can if you really do care don't keep checking it every second it's hard not to i was doing that at some points last night myself but if you can take a break from it go do something and come back and check it every so often not knowing is A very hard place to be but we have to accept that very often that is the case and not having control is also a very challenging space to be but very often in important things in life you won't have control and we have to relinquish that control in order to actually move forward let's go to another commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. So I was talking about anxiety and prompted by the election where we're in uncertain times here in the United States where we had our elections yesterday or the final day essentially because there was early voting and mail-in voting was yesterday. but We still don't know who is the winner of the election for presidency here in the United States and it might not be known for a few days and even there is talks of recounts and things that might happen so we might not know for a while so that not knowing is a tough space for us to be but as i mentioned in the last segment a lot of times in life we don't have control over things and we have to accept not knowing at least for a period of time Uh, i did want to talk a bit about politics not about taking sides so much but actually the problem of taking sides here in the United States, and some of the things I will talk about are fairly cliche or things you might hear from other people as well. But I I do want to talk about them because I think they are very important, especially looking at them with a slight psychological lens, especially what I think is interesting and saddening when you look at the, the state of politics in the United States is the two party system and related to that how adversarial it is and how much of a winner-take-all uh, type of a, a system we have. And I am not a expert in political science and the governments of all the different countries, but I do know in other countries, uh, some European countries, uh, even in India from what I was reading, uh, there is more of a representative type of elections in the sense that if 40% of the vote goes a certain way, then 40% of their parliament or bodies of government will be from that group, 18% from the group that got 18% and so on and so forth. And I think that's a much healthier and uh, quite frankly, much more correct way of doing things because the government should reflect the people and what they want and how they feel about different things. And I think that makes much more sense than a winner take all type of mentality. Uh, I think some of that is also reflected just in the United States' having more of an adversarial mindset about winners and losers winner takes all even our legal system is more adversarial than it needs to be i've heard that before also not a legal scholar but i've heard that and i think that makes sense when we turn things adversarial it's very much i have to win you lose zero sum uh, win at all costs because the cost of winning become so big because if we look at this election some of these states we have several million people voting and the vote might come down to a few thousand votes that then is going to potentially determine who is the president, winner take all. So 3.4 million and 3.4 million vote on both sides, but maybe 10,000 here or there. And so then 3.4 million people are going to be disappointed no matter what and get essentially no representation or no voice in a way. Uh, And then it becomes a very high stakes type of a battle. And I think it also Uh, in a lot of ways reduces the possibilities and the likelihood of collaboration of working together which we don't have in the united states and yes people will tell you things have gotten more polarized and they definitely have the you know social media i think plays a big part in this as far as people really living in two different realities it's it's sad you'll talk to people from you know both sides on the same issue and they'll have just totally different facts and realities about what's going on And so that makes it very hard to connect when we're not even really living in the same world, essentially. That does make it really hard. Yes, really, we're in the same world, but mentally and what we experience and what we feel about things is so different, more different than I think it's ever been. And social media plays a big part on that. If you see uh, articles and posts all day talking about how your person is good and the other side is corrupt whichever side you're on, you're going to see those things, then, of course, you're going to be in disbelief. And that's something that I've seen a lot, especially uh, right before the election. And even now, when you see people posting, it's like, how could people vote for this person and the other side's? How could people vote for this person, the other person? So um, people are just so, so disconnected. And so I think the winner takes all uh, type of system that we have is very negative. Uh, in the sense that it makes it so you don't have to care about the other side but if you know that okay even if you win 51 to 49 when you then get into the government it's going to be 51 49 now you know you're going to have to work together you know there's no uh, you, you just took the whole thing and that will impact how you also even campaign you know and you know with the campaigning I think it's so adversarial something that I know it's politics And so I don't study the politics too much of other countries or get exposed to too much of it. You see things here and there about their elections. I know in a lot of countries it's a much shorter process and I think that also makes sense than here in the United States. But you know here in America when people are campaigning you have to really talk so negatively about the other side. And so what what makes this funny is when you see the primary, so the Republicans are picking their presidential candidate and the Democrats are picking their presidential candidates and during that process there all attacking each other so the republicans are talking about how bad the other republican candidates are and this guy is corrupt and stupid and did this and he did that and here's his this scandal and that scandal and then democrats are doing that thing same thing you know talking bad about people in their own party this guy did this this woman did this look how bad he is why would you vote for him he's so bad then they pick their candidates and now all of a sudden they're like oh that guy that i was telling you is so horrible he's amazing he's the guy for the job You have to vote for him. He's so good. And even stranger, sometimes they become the vice presidential (laughs) candidate to that person. And now it's, we're working together. I love him. I love her. We're great. I can't wait. You should vote for only this person. And so, yes, we know that politicians a lot of times lie or say whatever they need to say or, uh, you know, um, will play. Obviously, we talk about playing politics for a reason. It has that term when we use it in uh, social settings or in a work setting. It's because we know it just means Doing whatever to make your team win or in your own self-interest, even if it means lying or uh, flip-flopping or changing your standard or having a double standard, even on a person. We kind of know that's how it goes, but but it's funny. I often think how refreshing it would be if you see a candidate at a debate being like, you know, my, my opponent, he or she is really good at this and this and this and actually if you look at their record on this they've done really well on that and i appreciate that but here's how i think i will be a better candidate Now, of course, you would hope anyone running does think they're the best candidate for the job, or they shouldn't be running, or they think they can be, so they're running, so I'm okay with that part, but I think it would be so interesting to see that, uh, and very refreshing, and I would really be drawn to a candidate like that, that would actually say, you know, my opponent is great, I think they're really good, and actually, if they end up winning, I think they will do a good job unless in the extreme case where they really do think that but what we see is no matter what they just have to attack each other and you see them and oftentimes you see these politicians who it doesn't even seem like they're comfortable with it but they think they have to you know sling mud at each other and talk about how bad the other person is and try to do these zingers at the debates where they insult the other person and especially now with social media and things try to have a viral clip of them you know taking down the other guy or the other girl But I don't know why it has to be that way. You know, I think this person's great. I think my policies or these ideas are better and I'll do a better job running the country or the city or state or whatever it is. Uh, But I think they're good. I would actually appreciate that more than, oh, this person's horrible and they're all bad. It doesn't even make sense, uh, you know, to say it that way. And so I think, unfortunately, we have a very adversarial mindset when it comes to politi- uh, politics in the United States, which is a lot of the way we are in general. Even I think when we look at America's mindset in taking care of the world, it's that you kill all of your enemies uh, and then you have peace, or you kind of get all of you know, your enemies to, to fall apart and then you're gonna be good or you change their governments. It's less about genuine diplomacy and trying to work together in that. And so when I look at how that adversarial mindset plays in relationships, especially in romantic relationships, we see the same thing. And very often when I do couples therapy, I'll even tell the cl- the couple this, or I'll f- think it uh, in my head. You can see very clearly they come to the therapist saying, you're going to give me the verdict that I win. And so I feel like I should walk in the room wearing a judge's robe because they're waiting for me to say You know husband guilty or wife guilty or who's the better partner or who's more wrong and who's more right Uh, they're focused on winning against each other and in any war when you are in a war no one wins you don't find out who's right you just find out who's left meaning who remains and you lose you always lose and so i see this in couples when they're so focused on winning And very often when you're having lots of fights and in a bad place in your marriage, in a relationship, you are focused on that. You want to be right. You don't feel heard by your partner. And so if they are trying to prove their point, you have to prove your point more strongly. And so we see that polarization even happening within a relationship. I got to prove I'm right, and you're so wrong. And so even these political type of tactics start to come in, slinging mud, talking about how bad they are, undermining their accomplishments. So you know you say something, oh, I've done this for you so many times. Oh, that's not a big deal. And then amplifying the negative things, amplifying the good things you did. And it becomes this adversarial thing. And a couple never gets to a better place. Can you imagine a couple gets to a better place by one of them saying, uh, you convinced me that I'm such a bad husband and that you are the perfect wife or vice versa? It doesn't happen unless in the very rarest of occasions when someone, for example, is doing something abusive or is dealing with something really significant. But almost all of the time, what I always remind the couple is right now you're pointing the finger at each other. The only way we're going to get anywhere is you've turned that finger around to yourself and pointed to yourself and say, what am I doing wrong? And what can I do better in this relationship to make it better? Yes, you have to air your grievances. I mentioned it even in the first or second segment about anger. You have to let your partner know how you've been hurt. So that is important to express it, but not in a way to prove them wrong and prove them bad. But in a way of, so they understand so that you can grow, so that they can possibly make changes and also understand you better. So we have to turn that around. And unfortunately, that's what we see in the United States. And what I think is sad is in this election, someone is going to quote unquote win, but the country is still going to lose because we created a war against each other. I know people are worried about civil war and violence and things, and I really hope it does not come to that at all. Uh, So far, I haven't heard anything too um, significant as far as that goes, but maybe when results get more solidified, things can happen. I hope it doesn't. Um, But nonetheless, even if there isn't that kind of actual violent war, the emotional war has created such a distance that whoever wins, we're still going to have a divided country. And a lot of work is going to have to be done to reunite it. I was kind of talking to a friend and we're saying how sad it is that we're so divided. And, you know, united is literally in the name of the country, the United States of America. Unfortunately, we're not really living up to that name right now because we are so divided. And so right now it's become so adversarial and people want to win and make the other side lose and prove to them that they're right and the other side is wrong and bad and they're the strong ones and the victors but I think unfortunately no matter who wins we're gonna have a lot of work ahead of us in reuniting the country and in whatever issues you're worried about Um, it's sad to say but just because one party will win it doesn't mean everything's gonna change we've seen that things change very slowly significant changes usually don't happen just because someone becomes president or doesn't become president i'm not saying it doesn't matter it definitely does but to think that okay if you win the election then everything changes that you want it's not happening so whatever issues you care about you're still gonna have to fight for them and that's good and that's okay you're gonna have to keep fighting but the real work to me is uniting this country and because we've made it so adversarial because it's a war We don't end up with winning together. We just end up having someone win and the other side defeated and dead, and that doesn't work. And the division will still be there no matter who wins. doesn't matter who wins the election. The division will be very, very clear. And I hope that we will recognize that, that we have to stop pointing the fingers to the others and point to ourselves. I also think things like the two-party system is not good because it creates such a polarized system. You can't have as much in between. Also, when you have things so polarized and when you just have two systems, it leads to almost this incestual state where there isn't a lot of new blood and new ideas things stay more stale. There's not a need to really be as innovative and creative. There's less space for that because you have to make sure everyone on uh, this side and everyone on that side can agree on things. So you become very stagnant. And that's unfortunate what we're seeing. And it's not, not good at all. And I think the biggest thing for me is seeing how divided we are. And I hope we can live to that name of being the United States of America. It's going to take some time because Uh, what's been happening lately and you know culminating this relationship has created a big big divide and so i'm hopeful but i know there's a lot of work to be done and i hope that whoever you voted for whoever you're rooting for that you also are rooting for uniting the country which is not just about your side winning but it's about actually accepting the other side connecting with the other side trying to find agreement to work together with the other side and we have a lot of work to be done all right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back, studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
2: Good afternoon, Dr. Okay.
1: Hi, thanks for calling.
2: Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, I'm going to go and uh, quickly jump on the uh, problem that recently um, I'm dealing with it every day in my marriage life. Uh, My name is Farhad. I'm 39 years old and uh, um, I'm a physician and my wife also is a physician. We both came to the U.S. almost 10 years ago, and um, uh, we went to the system, uh, although it was very hard, but uh, for my side, because um, I was graduated at the top of my class in Iran, so at the very first beginning, as, as soon as I applied, I get into a very good university, um, and after that fellowship and the second fellowship, and uh, hopefully I'm at a place that um, I'm enjoying it and um the thing is um uh, since we came to the us um uh, we'll, uh, we already have two kids uh, two girls one of them is uh, almost 6 years old another one was 4 years old and they are very lovely um almost 2 years ago uh, my wife and i um actually my wife started pushing me for the third one uh, i really didn't want it and uh, uh we were kind of um, arguing almost every day for the last two years um until get to the point that she said that I want it uh whether you like it or not um and uh literally it went to the um, point that uh she was saying that um i mean uh I don't want this life uh without the third one uh I don't care what you think. Uh, Very politely, Uh, we barely fight, and um, I can't remember the last one except for the one that happened recently. Uh, So anyway, after two years, um, um, I said, you know what, I was thinking, okay, this is my life. I really don't want to um, uh, just let it go as it is. And uh, my wife got pregnant. And uh, I'm actually um, around uh, one or two months ago. But since the time that she got pregnant, um, I feel completely disconnected. And uh, it's not even a day uh, that I'm uh, not thinking about it. And even it's hurting me more because the way that I'm um, reacting and behaving with my wife um, is completely different. I'm short tempered. Um, I uh, don't want to make any eye contact and uh, anything else um specifically um during these two years Uh, She was fighting with me in any way that you'd think, not, I mean, arguing or fighting physically. Um, But um, she made everything that she could, including the horrible experience in the sex. Uh, We didn't have any sexual uh, relationship uh, regularly anymore. Maybe once in three or four months and... Usually, it ended up at the middle of it by uh, saying something that uh, made you feel completely, you know, um, disconnected, like at the middle of it. Say something about NEOs or anything else. Um, she wasn't like that before. And um, um, I knew that she's doing it on purpose. But anyway, she uh, made the point and, and um, she forced me to the point that I said, you know what, uh, mm, just... Do whatever you want. Uh, But now I have a problem, bigger problem, myself that I'm thinking specifically uh, a couple, uh, I mean two weeks ago. uh, It went to the place that one night she told me that, hey, why you are reacting like this? And I told her that, you know what, Uh, I don't know why, but I'm so mad at you. And also from myself, I think you used me all of these years and um, because I really, I'm a very responsible person, and I was really taking care of her, and although she didn't uh, do um, a good job on the USMLEs and all the exams, um, but because of the the way that I was um, uh, doing during my residency and the reputation and everything else, um, she was always taking advantage of it. Um, even now, uh, getting to the place that I'm working, it's impossible for the foreign grad to come. Uh, but now, I'm thinking about all these 13 years or 12 years that we've been together, I'm thinking that I always uh, put herself um, in front of me or whenever she wanted. Uh, even if I, it wasn't okay with me, I would say that's fine. Um, but now I think that I'm thinking I got kind of abused emotionally um, and um, I don't know what to do, to be yeah. honest with you.
1: Well, I mean, obviously I'm hearing just your side of it, which, uh, you know, even if you're not trying to, is going to have your own bias in it. But it does, you know, her, the reactions seem extreme. And even earlier on, you said we don't really fight much, but then you um, talked about the way this happened about... You know, having the third kid and essentially demanding it, saying, I don't want this life, you know, it seemed very extreme. Um, so it could be that you guys didn't fight because you very often just didn't put up a fight. You didn't really say much or you let things happen. But I am a little concerned if what you're describing is accurate, of how extreme she was reacting about having a third child you know, sometimes having a first one, even maybe a second one, I'm not saying it, it's wrong to have a third one. But that extreme, that life in the way you're presenting it is almost like life with two kids is not worth living. But then with three kids is like a dream, that kind of extreme, and I know you didn't say that, but that's kind of how it sounded. You know, that level of being so extreme about it concerns me that it's not really accurate, or something's not quite right there. And even the way you said you felt disconnected, I can understand that because it seemed like, you know, you probably felt like you didn't matter in what happened, like you didn't exist in making this decision. And also, I'm not sure if you felt in some way when she says this life is not good or, or I don't want this life, uh, you know, maybe you took that personally, too, that you weren't making her happy or you weren't enough of a life and she needed a third kid. I'm not sure if that also played a part, but the the way you're describing the interaction does seem... Concerning that it was so extreme, and I think you felt so—you probably felt very left out of what's what's going on. Um, and I'm—I'm not and I'm sure. You know, when you talked to her about why a third kid, would she say why it makes such a difference for her?
2: You know, to be honest with you, um, uh, oh, let me just address the, the the very first point that you said. That um, mm-hmm. I think I believe. That at this point, at least, I don't know whether, uh, whether I'm talking about the emotion, which really I'm getting emotion, but and the last communication that we had about this, and I told her about my feeling, she said that, you know what? If it's really bothering you, and uh, if this is the way that you're thinking, um, and she was telling me this in completely cold blood. I said, that's, that's fine. Uh, we can start thinking about the separation and getting divorced, but we have to do it smoothly so uh, kids are not going to get hurt. So back on the, on the, the other side of the, of the port is um, uh, my family-in-law, they are all here. They're really nice people, though. And my family are uh, in Iran. Um, So I'm kind of um, um, alone here. Uh, I always um, was a person who uh, I was uh, building myself uh, from the scratch, although uh, I didn't need to, and even at the time that uh, we want to come to the States, uh, everyone was telling me that, uh, hey, um, your dad is a very famous physician here, and also my father-in-law, and they were saying that, why, you guys want to go over there and start everything from the scratch? And to be honest, I wasn't sure that this is the right decision or not, but because my wife said that no, we have to go, and um, all the other reasons, Uh, I don't want to pay attention to them, Uh, let's go. So that was the reason why that we come, because I was confident on myself and my ability that, okay, I I can do it, and I did it, it, and I made it. But literally, uh, this third kid, I have no idea about why my wife is so... uh, And this is the thing that she never brought it up before. Whenever we were thinking about kids, She always wanted two. And, uh, whenever I'm now, if I'm asking why the third one, she's not giving the straight answer. So it's just, I, I want it. I always want it. And when I'm confronting her and say, hey, but you've been telling me two, and we were happy with two. Uh, but this is the way, and unfortunately, I'm thinking that, okay, and now that I'm, I'm seeing the, the last 12 years we were, uh, uh married together, I always was the person that I was saying, yes, okay, and uh, let's do it, whatever you want, although it wasn't um, exactly what I wanted. But it wasn't as extreme as this right now Mm -hmm. that I cannot handle it. I mean, I cannot say I cannot handle it, but every day is uh, completely different from the like two months ago for me, and I Mm -hmm. cannot think about it. I cannot um, stop it.
1: So, I mean, and you're talking about handling it, of course, we want to make sure we can handle it, but before that even, we have to make sure we're feeling good or happy about the relationship. So, we don't want you just to tolerate your relationship. It should be something that feels good or you're you're feeling good about. But the way you're describing this disconnection, the, the way she, at least the way you describe it, changed. So, it makes me wonder, was she happy in this relationship and from your side looking at were we really that close or connected maybe there wasn't much there Uh, i'm not sure what happened but the way you describe it it's like something switched in her but i don't know if that was actually the way it happened or if she was showing you signs or showing you she was unhappy earlier Um, because at least from your experience the way she talked about divorce was very cold like it's not a big deal like we can just get separated which sounds strange to you so uh, i'm wondering if the connection that you thought you had or you thought everything was okay but maybe it wasn't so okay maybe she wasn't really happy and even maybe you weren't happy because some of what you're describing of even just like handling the relationship it might mean that you just wanted to have it more in a functional sense but i'm not sure how close you felt so can you tell me a bit about that what was it a very emotionally connected deep relationship earlier on or did it not really have that from the beginning
2: no we were we were really good and and you know um both parents be a a full-time doctor and then um in the academic place and also being a parent is a really big deal unless we are not on the same page and emotionally physically and everything else we were doing very fine with that but here's the thing that um, I sometimes as a physician I'm thinking about it um in in her family side almost everyone is uh, have a problem with uh, severe psychiatric issues like uh, severe bipolar and and lithium severe depression very severe obsessive compulsive disorder including um her dad um she has two brothers um uh, one of them, I think, is almost um, 38, and the other one is 30. Neither of them um, has any any relationship or even close to a stable relationship. Uh, one of them is almost um, uh, by himself all the time, doesn't want to connect with other people. He's a very nice guy If uh, whenever I'm talking to him. Um, but I'm thinking sometimes that maybe uh something is happening to her although she's she, i mean she's a psychiatrist she's a very good psychiatrist though uh, how
1: old is she by the way was it how old is she
2: oh uh, she's the same as mine is 39
1: okay yeah, um, it, it does. I, the way you describe it from your own assessment, it's like something switched. Well, I guess about two years ago, and she really wanted a kid and that lasted a long time. Now, maybe she felt like you weren't seeing her in some way or you were not caring about her needs. But it, it just does seem surprising. And there is something impulsive about that change. Like I need you know, rather than it being a want, it became like this, I need a third kid, which seems strange. Again, I know some people, they want to be a parent. So if they haven't haven't had a child, they might say, I really want to have a kid. That's so important for me to be a parent. But because you already had two, like the third one becoming this like need does strike me a little bit odd, like something, you know, changed. Uh, We're at a commercial break, but I definitely want us to continue. So hold on the line. Let's talk a bit after the break. Okay. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to him now. Hello. Hi. Uh, Hi. So, yeah, before the break, you shared uh, about what's going on in your family, between you and your wife. And, you know, you mentioned, like I said, the way you described it at least two years ago, such a change. But I'm wondering, was it really such a sudden shift in her? Um, or how do you sometimes when we things change, we look back, we might see some signs that either she was unhappy or you guys were disconnected. Do you see anything like that?
2: Um, nothing happened. I mean, um, the way that I see is like a progress since two years ago. It has started happening and just saying in the usual conversation. And usually when I was talking to her and say, hey, we have two, uh, we didn't have any plan for the third one. And as you know, our life, the way that we are doing it, uh, it's hard to handle. And neither of them is as important as the fact that I am not the person that can um, kind of deal with the third one. Uh, so she has started like, you know slightly slightly um, getting more and more and more and more um, uh, putting pressure on it to the point that said that you know what i want it and uh, one day is coming to me and say hey i want to get my eggs freeze another because my cousin did it another day come and says that you know what i have a patient today and uh, she's like 60, and she had already three kids. But when I was talking to her, she told me that uh, if I were at your age and uh, because I really wanted to have four kids, um, even if it cost me to go and get pregnant from someone else and come to my husband and say, hey, this is your kid, and this is, it is what it is, I would have done it. So these kind of things, slowly, (laughs) slowly, here and there, um, she started just putting on me, putting on me. Uh, So no, nothing happened suddenly, but certainly uh, there was a kind of progress.
1: Yeah, and, and there might have been a progress like she felt like, you know, even though you were saying you came to the United States more from her than you, maybe she felt like you had more of the control or power in the relationship. So this became a way of trying to get what she said I wanted or, you know, something like that. But it does seem that how extreme you described it is concerning for me that it was not just I'd like a third child. Clearly, she was not whether she went through some something personally that you were saying, even you're concerned about mental illness, some change or, or with you. But clearly there was she was very unhappy And I'm wondering, did you ask her about how your marriage was? I'm imagining that had to have come up back then too, when you're saying she said things like, I don't want this life. Uh, Did you talk to her about your marriage and if she was happy with you in the marriage?
2: Uh, You mean recently or at that time?
1: At that time, because you you said she said things like, I'm not happy or I don't want this life, something like that. So I'm wondering, when I hear I don't want this life, you know, and, and wanting another kid, in some ways, it can also imply, I'm not getting enough from the marriage, so I want another child to give me something. No, she
2: never, you know, she's a person that, um, if has ever, um, has been like this, I mean, from the very first beginning, uh, when I'm seeing i think it, and watching it, it's, she always wanted to get uh, whatever she wants. And she's a person that who would go no matter what the cost and will get it done. Only if she wanted.
1: Yeah. Well, and so maybe that that was there from the beginning when you were saying, you know, there was this change. And that's what I meant to look back. Maybe it wasn't that there was this sudden change, but you became more aware of it. Or it showed itself in some more extreme way that you couldn't ignore. Uh, When you were with her, even earlier in the relationship, were you comfortable around her? is she an angry person is she a calm person what is she like
2: no she's a calm person she's a calm person
1: so you were so why do you think you wouldn't tell her what you wanted or if you know uh, giving her you're saying you'd kind of give her what she wants
2: you know this is the very first time that she was absolutely getting the answer no from me uh for the for something that she wants this was the very first time that usually uh, whenever something is coming up or um, anything um i would led her to make the decision and usually I would okay with it. And um, I would be company with her, not only just okay, just go and do whatever you want. No, it's just a company with her and this is the way that she is describing me everywhere, that I have the best company and advisor and so on and so forth. But this is the first time that um, she was constantly hearing no from me for the last two years.
1: Yeah, well, that itself is not a good thing. The fact that you were never telling her no. Of course, we want to be supportive. We want to be agreeable, but no, no,
2: I would say no. We are. We we had a discussion okay. about it, but at the end of it, uh, when we had to make the decision, uh, I would make sure that that decision would be as much as close. Uh, Not even if it's exactly 100%, but as much as close to what she wants. But not the fact that I always ignore myself or not telling her my true feeling or uh, what I'm thinking.
1: Okay. Well, I don't know. The way you described it seemed like you were at least in some ways putting away what you wanted to make sure she was happy. That's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, sometimes. But I'm trying to understand if that's, you know, that's your personality, if you were... Concerned about her getting upset, which you're saying she's calm, so you're saying it wasn't about that. But the way you describe your marriage, it seems like you felt some pressure, whether it was from her or from yourself, to give her. You know, it obviously sounds good to give our partner what they want, but almost at the expense of yourself. That's just the theme that you're describing. And then now it's I'm finally saying no to her about something. Well, after ten years of marriage, it's strange that that would be the case. That nothing ever really was where you more put your foot down um you know in, in some way that that's that still strikes me as a little bit odd i don't know if that's just your personality or you know the this way you is my it i way.
2: rarely can say uh no uh to anyone not the fact that i'm putting everything on my shoulder but yeah. i'm trying to do my best in order to make um i mean everything that is happening even with my colleagues even with anyone else uh, just not a straight no uh, i will try to make the decision in a way that both sides be happy this is my personality yeah i agree
1: and over i mean overall that sounds good and i think it's good to try to make everyone happy but there's some level of avoiding conflict that can be too much where we at times will will not f- face the reality of it or our own reality, because some of what might have made you feel so disconnected, I felt it when you were talking about it, initially, especially of like, you know, it was like you didn't exist to her, you know, so you don't feel very connected to her when she's like, I'm going to do this no matter what, or even that story of her patient saying, I would get pregnant with someone else. To you know, just to have yeah, the baby. I mean, it's just uh, you know very selfishly saying what I want is the only thing that matters. Even if I have to do something clearly immoral and unethical to get what I want, you know, it's essentially saying I exist, you don't exist. You know, by saying it in that kind of a way. So it seems like you felt like you didn't exist. But I do wonder if that feeling was also there before too. If you're saying you would give her what she wants, again, overall that sounds good. But there might have been a way of sacrificing yourself to some degree that you felt like you weren't existing earlier too but this one just was a big big issue and it really is i, I would hope uh you guys you know her self being in mental health would would seek out couples therapy have you guys started that
2: well uh, to be honest a couple of the times i tried to talk to her in about this but The fact that um, um, she's a psychiatrist and uh, a very high level, um, almost all the time uh, that communication ended up to somewhere, something else. I mean, I don't think she's interested in it, at least or or exposed herself uh, to this kind of thing.
1: Okay. So where do things stand at this point? You said she mentions, if you're so unhappy, separation, but... Where do you stand with her at this point?
2: That's the thing, really. So here's the thing. Um, um, I turned myself to the point that just building this life and, um, I mean, kids and everything else. And now that I was thinking everything is going to get a little bit more stable, just got hit with this one. And... um, now I have problems with more myself because it seems that every day, daily basis, she's happy. Um, I can see her that uh, she got what she wanted and she's doing, uh, I mean, her daily work uh, without any, I mean, obstacle or at least she's not showing that there is a problem. Mm -hmm. But my first concern about myself is... uh, these kind of things that it's eating me from it inside that, uh, okay, I'm a t- I just was a tool all this year, and um, the fact that I never stuck in the past um, before this, but now um, I don't know what to do from now on, not um, particularly about herself, first about myself and then the life that we built it.
1: Well, I mean, uh, yes, uh, you have to deal with yourself, but you also have to deal with her. You know, the relationship is not in a good place. And I'm sure she, you know, she feels it too. And and so I would recommend in trying to reconnect with her, uh, I I understand you feel very hurt and wronged by her about this situation, but it's going to have to be a way of telling her that we need to reconnect together not about you know it's just about telling her she's wrong of course I'm sure if you go to therapy or if you guys talk you'll share that you're hurt or how you were hurt and she might share ways that she was hurt by you that you might not know about either Um, but it's not something and even the way you're saying it, it it could reflect your tendency to make sure everyone else is okay that it's like I make sure everyone else is okay and then I just take care of myself But this is not something I think you can solve on your own. And I think it's something for you to look at. Is there a tendency to put your own feelings and needs away, which actually will also not allow you to get as close to someone else? So that could have even affected your relationship with her from the beginning. But I don't see this as something as you have to just think about something and come to some place and then everything's going to work out. You are hurt by her. And uh, I, I wouldn't attack her. I wouldn't go off, you know, you never, you always did what you wanted. I never did what I wanted. That's not going to be an opening. At some point, you can share your feelings about things like that. Um, but I do feel that there is a disconnection and partially, I'm sure she brings her part into it, but since I'm talking to you, your part of it might be that you put your own feelings away and think that that's how you're going to you know, solve a relationship issue. It's going to be through you and her together. Now, of course, there'll be reflections you'll have to make. There might be things you'll deal with on your own. I would even recommend going to your own therapy. I hope you guys will do couples therapy, but going on your own to work on the things from your side is important. But to make things work, it's not going to just be, you know, you figure it out and then be happy with this which in a way it seems like you kind of got from her too maybe she made you feel that way but to me that's not at all the solution is just you kind of be okay with having this kid it's not even just about this kid and and that actually concerns me now that i'm saying that part when this child comes to you it's going to feel like you know this child will represent something really negative to you
2: yeah and that's not good at all i really don't want it
1: Yeah. that's And I don't want that. And I really don't want that for that child who obviously had no uh, at all say in what's going on and just comes into this world and deserves two loving parents. So that's also something to really be aware of is that it's, I don't think it's something that, you know, you have to just on your own figure out. It's going to have to be with her and, and the two of you together. And I hope you will have enough, uh, you know the bond is there, uh, strong enough to to work on it together. That the solution has to be a we type of a thing, not just okay. She's happy, and if you can be happy with what she's happy with, I don't think that's going to work. Even the way you're describing it, that's what resentment feels like. You have this like, you know, anger burning inside of you, and I don't think it's something that you can just get rid of completely on your own. It's going to show up in other ways. And again, my concern is really with the child. How are you going to be? And you mentioned before something like, you know, something like having a third child is not something I can handle. I don't know what you meant about that. If I don't know if you recall I mean, what I'm um, saying.
2: It's not the handling things, but, you know, um, that's, that goes back to my personality again because I'm I'm really responsible person. Even now, that my job is um, I'm at a transplant physician, so it's uh, really complicated patients and mm-hmm. all the responsibility. But even now, i um, I'm taking care of everything related to the educational aspects of my kids and uh, everything, everything. She doesn't have any idea about um, anything about, uh, for example, right now the school, the distance learning, the everything else. So the other part of it just comes with the responsibility, and you know, saying that I cannot see anything that I can do in the future for this child, at least now. That I'm in this situation right now. That's I, I, that's that's the, that's the other things. You know, I'm the person that when I see something, I will make a plan for it for not like one or two years, even for ten years from now. From now, uh, this is the way that I'm I'm doing it with the patience because of the the way that I trained is like this whole my life. So that's everything that comes to my mind as another factor, just adding on while you cannot do anything to just prevent being added.
1: Well, you can't prevent, and you know, planning is very important. We need that side, but also being in the moment is very important. What you feel in the moment is going to be very important. And so, as I mentioned before, with her, you're going to have to, to go through this together. It's not something I think you can figure out on your own. And maybe that's been something your whole life you're it seems very successful you've been able to accomplish a lot and just rely on yourself and even in situations okay i can handle it just make sure everyone's okay i can handle the rest and and i don't want to make it sound extreme i doubt that means literally every moment but it seems like that's the tendency and so even here it seems like at some level you feel like you might have to deal with it on your own but yeah it's going to be you and her you've mentioned couples therapy so clearly you are saying in some way you want to do it with her But it's going to be necessary and you know i would even tell her look at where our relationship is we already have two kids and so they deserve it but also this third kid coming into this marriage because the marriage is the foundation of the home and sets the tone and the environment of the kind of love and the loving feeling of the home we need to do something about it and i hope she will be open to that because i don't think it's something you can solve on your own there really is no way and so i wouldn't focus just on how bad you're feeling which is very important and it's going to have to be part of the process but especially focusing on reconnecting with her and trying to create a better marriage uh, for yourselves of course too but you have two and one on the way who are dependent on you both so i hope that you will you will seek some help together and it's going to be together that things will get better
2: thank you so much
1: thank you for calling wish you the best
2: thank you Take care. Thank you.
1: Take care. Going into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Am I on the air? Yes, you are. Thanks for calling.
0: Yeah. Hi. Um, Your voice doesn't come very uh, loud enough.
1: Okay. I don't know. I can see uh, if it's not coming in clear into the radio. Ghazala will let me know. If not, I'm not sure. I'll try to speak a little more loud, but that's about all I can do.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I do my best to to hear what you say. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think uh, maybe the last session or the session before you were talking about implicit um, prejudice or bias. Uh Uh, Now, my question is uh, in relation to that, but rather something which is um, I don't think you did discuss Uh, and my question is this when um, a person like myself doesn't feel attracted from a romantic point of view to certain looks or group of uh, or a nationality Mm -hmm. uh, uh, even though in every other way uh, there's absolutely no prejudice uh, or dislike in fact it's totally contrary perhaps because the person is conscious of that. Would that constitute uh, some kind of prejudice or racism?
1: Well, it's it's a complicated issue. So going back to what you're you're mentioning, the implicit bias, uh, you know, what that means is you probably were hearing it but i'll just repeat it just so we're all on the same page listening is that you might not explicitly you might ask you about a certain group and you might consciously think you like them or whatever it is you feel about that group but if we do certain testing and they do this implicit association test which i won't get into the details we can see if you associate positive or negative things with members of that group be it about race gender sexuality age they do it on all sorts of different things so you might not even consciously be aware of it or even consciously endorse some kind of feeling but we really essentially have feelings towards everything even right now i'm I'm, where i'm sitting i could look at different things and they bring up a feeling most of them won't be so strong so i won't even recognize it or feel it but something is there and so of course when it comes to groups of people we all carry with us different biases that come from our life experiences, including um, family experiences, cultural experiences, what we've experienced in the media, all sorts of things can affect that. And so uh, we're hoping to be accepting of everyone and we want to challenge our own biases because we know we all have them. Essentially, we all are racist to a degree, but it's understanding how much and trying to overcome that. And I say that so we have the humility of not just attacking others, but looking within to see what we have. But then when it comes to attraction, of course, there's an intersection of these factors. If we have certain implicit biases about a certain group, that can affect our attraction to them above and beyond anything else so if you for example your whole life were told that people from this group are bad or immoral or this or that and then you see someone of that group without even you being aware of it unconsciously, that's going to affect how you feel about that person in multiple ways. Even in some ways, depending on what your attraction is about, maybe if they're somehow bad, it might attract you to them. You know, it's complicated. But in a lot of ways, we can say more simply, if you have some negative biases, you might be, uh, again, you know, not going towards them. Now, your question was interesting, even the way you said it, is that a prejudice or a bias? Well, when it comes to our attraction, we will have certain biases that make sense even for example, you know, you have an age range bias that you have, which makes sense. So if someone's 40 years older than you, and you don't feel attracted to them, we can say that's quote unquote, discrimination of age discrimination, but it can actually make sense. Some of the ways that we have, um, you know, that type of discrimination. Now, if you say I'm going to be mean to someone or, you know, disrespect someone of a certain age, that would be to me very wrong. But having attraction to certain people, um, that also is is less in our control. Now, again, if we have biases, we can look at them, but I don't think it means that we have to be equally attracted in a romantic or sexual way to every person. Even some people, if they're heterosexual or homosexual, they won't be attracted to one of the sexes. So that's okay. It doesn't mean they're being discriminatory and they have to be attracted to everyone. Yeah. So so, so
0: you answered my question. So morally, it's not wrong. I mean, I know that, you know, I'm very conscious of of the fact, for example, if somebody said, come and meet this person, and I find out that he's from certain local nationality, um, I would not be interested so that's not morally
1: wrong is it i I don't think so i think i would always I, i you know and i do this for myself and i'd recommend to anyone to also look a little bit deeper so attraction is like these things i'm talking about kind of an instant thing you see someone you feel something you know now even they've done studies this is kind of a funny one where um they'll show people like two pictures of a woman to to men And then they'll say like they want they like the left one or the right one Then they put the pictures down and they actually hand them the other picture So it's not the woman they said is more attractive and they say why do you think she's more attractive and they'll come up with reasons So when we try to consciously explain sometimes the things that we feel attracted to or we like or dislike We actually aren't very good at it or they've done taste tests where when people have to describe why something tastes good they don't do as good of a job compared to like actual judges in the field of testing those things but if they just say their initial reaction they do pretty well so uh, attraction is this kind of automatic thing but then of course it could be affected by these biases so i think people have attractions and it's very complex it's going to be affected by things like race and racism and other things but i think we have preferences of body types and things that might not be related to race specifically but other aspects of physical attraction um, that we can look at now if they say He's from this background, and it makes you think he's his personality is a certain way. And there are cultural issues that can affect personality, but maybe there's some biases there. So I think it's always worth looking a little bit deeper, but your question of, am I morally wrong for not being attracted to everyone equally, to me, is not a yes. Now, again, if someone is racist towards a certain group, and because of that thinks everyone in that group is ugly, that's a different type of a... A thing. Now, another thing we know about attraction is familiarity breeds attraction. So, uh, you know, I remember one of my anthropology professors talking about when he went to some other region. At the beginning, he didn't find the locals of that region very attractive. But after being there for a while, then he did he became more familiar, he could kind of notice the attraction differences between people that he had an attraction to. And so we also know that lack of familiarity does not breed attraction and more familiarity, familiarity and exposure will. So there's things you can look at within that is it really, uh, you know, this is my type versus not my type, what things are affecting that as well. Uh, But to me, you know, I think, even when you're picking a partner, you should be very discriminatory in the sense that you pick someone that's a good match, you're physically attracted to, you feel a emotional connection to. It's not going to be everyone. You can't just say, I can marry any person because I'm a you know humanitarian and I care about everyone. Who you pick as a partner, even who you pick as a friend, you should be open, hopefully, to anyone, but then you see how you match and how you get along. That's going to be important. So I think there's differences between treating everyone with respect and equality, wanting equality for everyone, and meaning that we have to then treat everyone equally in our life is not the same thing. You know, you pick your friends, you pick your romantic partners based on certain things that, you know, I wouldn't expect you to put as far as if you see someone in the street, be polite to everyone. But should everyone be your romantic partner? No, you, you can have preferences and should be in that sense, uh, picky, or if you want to call it even discriminatory, sounds negative, like you're judging certain groups, but you discriminate between what you like and you don't like.
0: Thank you. Now, because I'm conscious of this, when it comes to other aspects, for example, if I was to employ somebody um, for my company or if I was to let my property to somebody and I had two people and everything else are equal and one is from the group that I'm um, romantically will not be interested, then I go for that person rather than the other one. So I, I kind of consciously try to sort of... Um, Make up for it, if you like. So I, I don't know
1: if that's right or not. Well, I mean, I don't know. If, I, I wouldn't say it's right. But even your your the way you bring up the question, there's a certain worry. Uh, I don't want to label it, but like a neurotic anxiety about being wrong or doing the wrong thing. You know, even asking for me to tell you if what you're attracted to makes you right or wrong or good or bad. And so I don't think it's necessarily wrong. But it's something to look at. It seems like you carry a guilt about not being attracted to members of whatever this group is, we don't need to talk about that. And we just about have to wrap up anyway. Um, and that guilt is something I would look at, because the guilt might be driving it more than something really good. Well, I don't see you romantically. So I have to make up for it, because I've done something where I think you're allowed to be attracted to certain people and not attracted to some people. Um, but I, I would take a little deeper look at that and see if you can resolve that guilt. So it's not really uh, coloring your decision making when it comes to to looking at picking someone for whatever it might be but it seems like you're carrying a guilt which even in how you asked me the question could be related to some neuroticism of a fear of doing the wrong thing or of being bad which usually as i mentioned at the beginning of the show it's kind of an over uh strong anxiety or anxiety on overdrive rather than actually something we do have to wrap up it would be interesting to continue this some other time but i appreciate your call Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right. Thank you to all the callers. Oh, sorry about that. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Ghat in the studio for allowing me to do the show remotely. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.